Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. I am so excited for this episode. Today, it is an interview I did with my good friend, Courtney Summers, about her new book, I'm the Girl. Courtney came on... Um, about, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I think, and uh, talked about her book, The Project. So I was delighted to be able to bring her back for um, I'm the Girl. Courtney and I have kept in contact uh, over the, um, again, in between these two interviews from when I first interviewed her to this most recent one. And um, she is just so much fun to talk to. She gets very excited about her books, understandably so. And I, yeah, again, just a, a delight to talk to you, especially about this book, which, um, you know, like all of Courtney's books is, is about a teenage girl kind of trying to navigate her place in the world and figure out who she is and, you know, dealing with, um, everything that comes along with that, with the world sort of viewing you as more mature than you really are, um, violence against women and girls. If you've, enjoyed Courtney's other books, you will absolutely enjoy I'm the Girl. Um, And there's also some Easter eggs for Sadie, which is fun. So if you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. Go to our website, ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. And of course, if you have anything you would like to say about um, this episode, this interview, have books you want to recommend us, ask us for um, book recommendations for yourself, you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. So I think that's everything. Um, And yeah, so I hope you all enjoy this episode and interview with Courtney Summers on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I love being here. I love talking to you. We had such a fun time the last time. I know. I'm so excited. So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to your new book, I'm the Girl? Okay. I'm the Girl is a lesbian coming of age novel that's based loosely on the Epstein case, and it follows 16-year-old Georgia Avis, whose accidental discovery of a murdered girl throws her into a glittering world of unimaginable privilege and wealth and the fight for her life. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that, that is all true. <laughs> that is all true. Um, I told no lies. <laughs> you also like gave me answers to like my next like two questions. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> what were they? Maybe we can make okay. this work. <laughs> okay. So my next question was this book tackles a lot of issues asking questions <laughs> about power, predatory behavior, agency, and complicity. What made you want to write about, about these topics? Well, I mean, I can work with that. Okay. <laughs> I can talk about my work all day. Okay. 
Um, well, I'm really interested in how patriarchal systems of power impact the way young women move through the world and how they feel about their bodies. And the stakes I built this book around are basically the different expressions of violence girls and women encounter in their lives and our cultural propensity to blame victims and survivors for sexual abuse and the covert and overt ways we facilitate and uphold rape culture to enable predators. And I think the Epstein case is a really good example of our cultural failure across the board to protect young women. So it was really my entry point into exploring all of these themes. No, that I was gonna, another one of my questions. See, like, why do I even write questions? <laughs> Courtney, we're just gonna talk and it's gonna be great. Um, no, <laughs> one, of my, one of my other questions was that, you know, so many of your books do deal with young women trying to navigate a world and finding a, a place of belonging within it, especially when there is all of this violence against women and, and Georgia is no different. Um, but what I, I liked about Georgia is that she spends a lot of time um, fighting against the stereotype that just because she's beautiful, she must be stupid. Right. Like there are there are several um, people in her life who we are supposed to believe care for her who who call her stupid. And I, I do get the sense that they do care about her and they do love her, but are frustrated by her naivete perhaps and they and they release that frustration by calling her stupid wow release that right. frustration by calling her stupid um can you talk a little bit more about that, that particular element of the book um well i wrote like georgia is a character who is designed to challenge readers who i think would consider themselves allies and not consider themselves misogynistic or anything like that but as soon as George's behavior starts pushing against what they feel she should be doing or uh, or is not, you know, well, it's very much in keeping with a naive 16 year old girl's behaviors, like everything she does to me feels very teenage. But as soon as she starts doing these things that make you go, oh, God, no, don't do that. They have a very visceral, almost like emotionally violent response to that. And I've seen. Uh, certain reviews that really lean into the victim blaming rhetoric to justify the reaction they're having to what she's going through. And I think it's really important to point out how insidious rape culture is and how we, I don't think any of us have entirely escaped a society that has conditioned us from very young ages to hate women. So sometimes like the first word you reach for when you see a girl in a dangerous mm -hmm. situation isn't like, what's happening to her it's like what is she doing to herself and it's never that she's i you know she's not doing it to herself but we're just so mentally conditioned to put her behavior on trial first so i wanted some of the worst things you could say to a vulnerable 16 year old who's being groomed uh to come from the mouths of the people who loved her the most because nobody escapes it it's such a depressing fact of life but we can always do better like i mean i hope that gives people pause, like, oh, these are the good guys. And they're saying things that, uh, you know, we're constantly railing against in the media and things like that, so. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> no, you're, you're right. I think Georgia, she very much does feel like a 16 year old. And I think she feels like a 16 year old who believes that she's a very mature 16 year old. Right. And I remember being that same 16 year old and- same. <laughs> choices were made that yes I'm sure other people thought I was stupid and and was very much like what what are you doing and so I do 
think that element of Georgia is in particular, that feels very honest and very real because I've been there. Right. It's amazing how willing people are to forget <laughs> that they didn't know it all at all points in their lives. Like, I mean, it's always easy to sit from a spectator's seat and say, what a fool, what are you doing? This is so obvious. And just to, to remove that, to remove yourself from like, I mean, the process of grooming is so deeply layered and it's yeah. just like the whole point of it is you don't know, you like, I, as you know, I wrote about cults before, like obviously there's something about the way human beings are conditioned to respond to being, feeling respected and loved and seen. And, but nobody wants to admit they're that vulnerable. I don't get it. Like, I'm always willing to admit that I join a cult in a second. You know, it's not, I don't ever want to write characters that I think I'm better than. I don't think that's a, a way to write an empathetic book. And that's what's at the heart of I'm the Girl is like empathy for survivors, I think. Mm, that's interesting, this idea that you don't want to write characters you think you're better than. I, right. wow. I have read books like that and didn't realize that that was what was happening, but <laughs> this is the are... Revelation podcast episode. We're going to go through it today. <laughs> there are authors who do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean, that's a thing. I, I, I think it's especially expected in the young adult category. And I, I just, I actively, I reject that. I just think uh, it's not my place to use characters as a, a, a prop to moralize or or impart a lesson, especially if it's at the expense of the girl I'm telling the story about, because there were points during the process of this book where it was sort of suggested to me that someone take Georgia aside and tell her mm. what has happened to her and how she made it happen. And I'm like, this might protect you from people that don't want to empathize with her, but I don't really care about them. I'm not using her to make other people feel more comfortable and morally superior with the story they're reading like morally connected to because they feel better than Georgia like it just I can't do that I don't think that's my job as an author and I never want it to be my job as an author so that brings up I think a good point about who the audience for YA books are and who writers write for when they're writing YA because you know there's this um I don't know if I want to call it a trend but there is in the YA sphere, a lot of adult readers reading these books and then right. they get frustrated because the teenage characters act like act teenagers. Like teenagers. Yes. I think what sets your books apart is that they very much do feel like, like you are writing for a teenage audience and for the girls who are George's age and would be reading this book. It's so weird too, because like the a lot of adult readers who read these books are like, this isn't appropriate for teenagers. And mm -hmm. I don't see anything that's inappropriate about George's story, especially when you consider um, what it's based on. Like Epstein yeah. was going after girls George's age from George's circumstances. And if, you know, I'm the Girl is in no way a sanitized version of its own events. But if I had written something like it's complete. I should say I'm the girl is completely its own thing. It's loosely inspired by the Epstein case. But if I had decided to write something that was um, more on the nose, like the things that would be in that book would be uh, even more horrific than they already are. Like the reality of these situations is so much worse than anything you're reading. And, and I get that what you're reading is pretty devastating, but people don't want to admit that like, this is portrait. This is a portrayal of something that 
in real life is far worse and is actually happening to girls so that age so why would you say they're not capable of handling it when we throw them into situations they're not capable of handling in all the time and i got this great review from a 16 year old girl who said desia who said essentially that it's like this is happening this is yeah. life why don't you think we you know if you think you know like you let this ha like the people who are supposed to protect this let protect us let this happen to us but you you want to keep a book from us like what yeah i know it's yeah, it's, it's a whole, it's a, it's a whole, whole thing. thing. <laughs> we could have a whole episode just about that. <laughs> just um, us yelling and shaking our fists. Pretty much. Um, I, that said, I do, you know, one of the things I appreciate about this book is that it does deal with sex and grooming and sexual exploitation in a way that is both honest and open, but not graphic. You give readers you. just enough to kind of understand the situations Georgia is in and make us, or at least me, deeply uncomfortable right. but without going too deep into descriptions. Like it, it opens, like the scene it opens in, she's in a mall storeroom, like on her right. knees in front of a man and we know what is happening, but we are left to fill in the details by ourselves and are probably making it way more, right. you know, like left to our imagination. So one, I'm assuming that was intentional, but two, how do you balance that as a writer when you're crafting those scenes? I think, hmm, it's, a, it's interesting that you say that, and I really appreciate that you said that, and I'm very grateful that you said that, because actually there's been a handful of reviews that accuse I'm the girl of being trauma porn, and I'm like, a oh, book that makes oh, you uncomfortable is not trauma porn, and I, I think to dismiss a book this it was meticulously researched. It was vetted as trauma porn because uh, the uncomfortable parts make you uncomfortable. It's just another way of turning your back on the realities it presents. But but that's a, a new and interesting thing I'm having to contend with. I'm like that's that's not trauma porn. Um, it's it's all at the. I think empathy is the basis of what I write, the space I write from. I have to write from a place that is inherently understanding, sympathetic to, and cares about the girls at the heart of their story. And once you're keeping that in the forefront of your mind, it is very hard to drift off into um, exploitative spaces. I mean, it's it's so easy to tell when something is graphic for the sake of being graphic or explicit for being, uh, for the sake of being explicit. And this book, like, kept me up at night it haunted my dreams it, it upset me deeply and and i think that was a good thing i think that's why the execution and you said it i mean jill said it it held <laughs> but you know that's why i think it kind of reads okay um as okay as anything like that can read um not sh not for shock value not for gratuitousness but because um it wants to maintain a level of honesty but not at the not at the female character's expense that's so interesting that people read this and got trauma porn. I know. I think, you know, trauma porn is a whole thing and, and that ain't it. <laughs> no, because I mean, again, like, you know, Georgia's in these situations. You right. sort of let us know what those situations are, but you don't in any way describe them in a way no. that I would, I would assume trauma porn would have. You don't, you don't, Right. Do it's in, yeah, I think. <laughs> so I like just, the situations themselves, I mean, like, yeah, that's such a, that's such a strange, 
phrase to assign this book. Thank you. I think so too. I mean, people are entitled to their opinions, but like, I feel like I'm, there's just some things like I can't let go unaddressed. Like, you you know, books are for their readers, but I also, like yeah. I said, I think when you uh, dismiss a book that makes you uncomfortable as trauma porn, which is a very loaded uh, thing to say or, or assign a book, uh, you know, I want to say that's, that's, just another way of sweeping it under the rug. That's just another way of dismissing it. It's easy to get people to walk away from a, a narrative that is like examining rape culture and patriarchal systems of power and calling it trauma porn. Like why would it's eh. Well, I think that kind of goes to what you were saying just a minute ago about people not thinking this topic is appropriate for girls to read about, even though it's right. actually happening to them which is, we should talk about that because, you know, that's a thing that's happening <laughs> where adults are like, you can't read about it, even though it's happening to you. And, you know, that's not okay. It's not, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is so strange. It's like, we don't want to equip uh, young women uh, with the knowledge to empower themselves, to um, move through the world a little more, I don't want to say safely because this world is it's you know this yeah. world um but just to give them a space to be um understood to be seen to be heard um so they can make choices for themselves that they might not otherwise have the ability to know how to make like you have a space in fiction that they can read and and sort of understand and process what might be happening to them or maybe it's not happening to them but maybe one day they might find themselves in a situation that gives them the data they need to make a, a safer choice for themselves um we want to keep that from them why it doesn't make sense and then okay you don't give them that information and then they find themselves in these circumstances and what's the first thing we do when they come forward why didn't you make a better choice you know like we don't want to give yeah. them the knowledge they need to move through this world with a greater degree of safety but we want to punish them when they don't know how to do that it's just yeah. like it's almost like you can't win if you're a girl it's just weird no <laughs> you can't win no no. <laughs> no I I think it's yeah I wonder how much of it is kind of you know going back to the idea of like sweeping things under the rug like it's easy you know once you put it in print and in a book, a girl can read it and identify and say, oh, that happened to me as well. And up until that point, maybe they weren't listened to or the adults in their life just sort of wanted to ignore it. Um, right. Or kind and of- And also like, it's a book about sex, like there's sex- Yeah, well, book. that too. There and is. sexuality and like, you know, we, no girls don't know, well, you know, like we just a whole- we're not as far from those uh, culturally ingrained, yeah. bad, you know, repressive. That's true, too. Yeah. That's true. Yes, because there this are books should do really well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will. I think it will. Let's not get ourselves. <laughs> I think it will. But, you know, it's, I, I think about when I was sort of George's age and, you know, um, not quite to this extent, but. I think a lot of, I think a lot of us had similar 
relationships or people in our life to the to the the grooming adults in George's life, but we don't necessarily see them as such because again, right. we're sort of like we're a mature 16-year-old. Yeah. And then years down the road, we we read these books or we read you know memoirs from people and you're like, oh that's yeah, like- what that was. Because there's there's a scene in the book um you know in the beginning we know that there are there are photographs and these photographs get referenced later and and there are conversations where people are trying to explain to Georgia what these photographs represent but they represent something different to her and I thought that was so interesting and like is there going to come a time in Georgia's life down the road where she sort of understands what those people were trying to tell her do you think I think absolutely like by the end, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think by the end, she's um, very, to me, actually, when I think about the book and how I wrote it, I don't think Georgia was ever entirely unaware of that fact. You can just see her, she's in a lot of denial because she doesn't Mm -hmm. want to admit that she's been taken advantage of in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Like you can see her, she repeatedly asks her brother, why do you think I'm stupid? Why do you think, like she's daring him to say it. She knows what he's actually, getting you know talking around but he won't say it because he's not going to call her stupid out right and she knows that but she knows what he's circling and she knows what Nora's circling and she just so desperately wants them to be wrong because if they're not wrong then they're right and she's she's stupid well she's not but you know that's what she yes. thinks yeah so I really think that to some extent Georgia knows what those photos are but she also knows that that's why what Cleo says throughout the book really resonates mm-hmm. with her. It's like, you get to decide. I'm giving you autonomy and power back to yourself in a world that is continuously trying to take it from you. You get to decide what those photos are. No one else does. And I think her relationship with those photos are going is obviously going to change over time. But hopefully by the end of the book, you know, like the point after the book, she's uh, in a more self-forgiving space. Yeah. 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 Cleo was just a fascinating character to read. I just, the narrative sort of arc we take with Cleo in particular um, was just very, very compelling. And and all of your characters are compelling, but I'm, I'm wondering if there were any characters that you found more challenging to write or were there any that just were very easy to write from the beginning? Oh gosh. Um. (laughs) The hard questions here. I think, oh gosh, you know, it's, I don't want to say, nobody's easy to write in that book. Like Georgia. That's fair. I I, I loved writing Georgia. Cleo was actually really fascinating because getting her philosophy just right. Yeah. Was, um, it was hard. It was difficult. It's because it just had to, it had to make enough sense. Like you knew it was wrong, but it also had to be on some level true. Because I think in a lot of ways, Cleo is speaking to it a general truth that we all know and that's that we live under a patriarchy and it sucks (laughs) you know like so when you want to carve out autonomy and power you have to seek it feels sometimes that you have to seek people more powerful than you to get those things um unfortunately everything that cleo was backing those statements up with was terrible and wrong (laughs) but she i think she spoke to something that you know at our most defeated moments would resonate with all of us a little bit. Yeah, I 
I think that's sort of what I found so interesting about Cleo is that she was wrong, but you understood why she felt that right. way. Yeah, and she you was sort a victim of, of her own life. Like she was right. a victim in her life too. And she took, uh, and she was trying to re-empower herself. And he, that don't do that, kids. Don't do it the way Cleo does. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't. But, you know, you just see the, you see what this living under this patriarchy for these women and girls is like, and everyone's making a choice that's in their own best interest in this book and money and power rules everything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Um, okay, so this is this next question is long. Just please go with me for it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so in an interview you did a few years ago, you referenced something Regina Spector said about taking an idea for a song. Oh my God. She tries. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, this is what we're doing. <laughs> doing the deep dive here. For oh me. my God. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. But um, so she has an idea for a song, but when she puts it to a piano and tries to put it out in the world, something gets a little bit lost. And you said you felt the same way about your writing saying that, and I quote, the heart of my idea remains intact, (laughs) but the way it takes its ultimate form is always a little different. But as long as the heart is still there and you're satisfied with what you believe in and what you've created. So I know you talked about how this was somewhat inspired by Epstein. Um, I'm wondering, you know, do you still feel the same way about your writing? And do you remember sort of how this book started when you sort of think about it from the perspective of Regina Spector and that quote of yours oh my god (laughs) you know I still think about that quote a lot so that's like very well chosen that was it's terrifying to hear your how many years old words read back to you it it was was mean Jill that was was mean It was a while ago, but oh, <laughs> it lives on the internet. I love it this does. sweaty reminder that everything you say is forever. It is okay. it's forever. <laughs> I mean, I I think I've gotten better over time at understanding the central themes of my novels and what I want them to say. So I think I struggle less with um, how exactly they'll be executed. When I was a relatively newer writer, I would do a lot of writing to get to the point, mm. and now I find the point a little faster. There are other things that are hard now, like everything, um, but just getting um, it's it's a little bit easier to go from the point to the scene that needs to articulate the point than it used to be for me. But easy is I just have to emphasize that easy is relative and I'm miserable yes. all the time. <laughs> um, I'm the girl. Gosh, there, you know, I think. The hardest part for me to articulate in that not this is it's, this is so ridiculous. It took me so long 
and I mean like so I don't I don't want to admit how long it took me because it ends up close to when the book got done figuring out what George's job would be at Aspera that was the nightmare of my life I was like okay she's not old enough to do this she's not old enough to do that she's not I had to like me and my agent would get on the phone we'd be like brainstorming it's like it's like maybe she's like picking vegetables in the garden or something where they like have their farm fresh produce for the (laughs) very rich it's like that doesn't work no but it's funny but it doesn't work at all it it just the digital concierge was a nightmare but it came together that's so funny I don't know why that's funny to me (laughs) because the great like you think like the struggle might be like the greater themes of like the the horrible um you know sex trafficking that that was like that yeah I was think I was just angry enough to have that part of my vision completely crystallized that I had to get hung up on this what is she actually going to do at Aspera like that took forever <laughs> we should say like <laughs> Aspira is a like oh, yes. members only very fancy resort uh, yes. club resort yeah um would you ever want to be a member of a club like that uh if it was like not deeply bad and <laughs> inside fair. and run like because I assume if I was a member of a club that was not deeply bad and run like Aspira I would also be rich and famous and I I wouldn't you know who doesn't mm-hmm. love money and adoration <laughs> I can appreciate that perspective. <laughs> I can appreciate. Yeah, Again, I, I, as long yeah. as it's a good place, right? A good resort, a good yes. exclusive resort that leaves other people outside. Like, there's no good <laughs> exclusive resort, is there? I think the heart of the matter is, I just want to be rich, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, so you want to be able to be a member of a club, just not necessarily actually a member of a club like that. Yes. The takeaway. Okay. Okay. Um, she just cuts right to it. She's so good at this. That's why I love talking to her. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I was. It's true, it, though. <laughs> it, is, it is true. That's fair. I, I was reading it, and I and I think I was sort of the same in that I've been like, I like the idea in theory of a club like this of right. being a member, but also, I don't want to be. <laughs> just, it more but, but, speaks to like financial stability. Yes. Who doesn't dream of that every day of their lives? <laughs> It does speak to financial stability, but I do wonder sometimes about the other members that we don't really see. Like, I, I, I like that we don't really actually go up to the executive level because whatever's right. happening up there is not good. No, but, it's bad. <laughs> and, and I'm just sort of like, do the other members just, are they unaware of what is happening or are they all in on it? Do you think? Like, I mean, have you ever read a story about rich people gathering in one place that has ever been good, like in real life? <laughs> I mean, okay. like, honestly, I'm like, they've all got it. Like, there's got to be some low level complicity at all stages. I mean, like the whole thing with. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, at one point in the book, uh, Matthew is welcoming in a disgraced film director, yeah. or no film, a studio exec. And it's like everyone is it's implied everyone in like Hollywood and the world knows this guy's life is crumbling because he's a big sleaze bag. Yeah. So it's like you've got to realize if someone's going, oh, come here and we'll we'll treat you like a good person, that maybe a lot of bad people are there. That's true. That's true. That's okay. That's yeah. that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> when you put it that way. I'm sure that maybe there's like, you know, the children of certain members are fine. You know, like extended yeah. grandmothers and things like that. They're just visiting yeah. for the day. They're good. 
There you go. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. just thinking there's a, there's a scene um, where Georgia is is there and and she happens to see um, there's a situation she sees in an elevator and I'm just oh. like, does nobody else see this? Does nobody else? Are we just we're just pretending? And maybe that is. Maybe they're just like we're we don't want to know about that and we don't we're just though, going do to ignore right yeah so we're just going so any other members who may be around or may see that may just be like you know what uh that's not my problem i'm yep. going to ignore that which i think sort of speaks to they're like i'm rich everything. but i'm not that rich right like, <laughs> <laughs> right but also sort of just not wanting to get involved with right. whatever that is and I mean, I girls think, are so disposable, like, you know, yeah. Like, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's sort of, sort of, sort of the, the takeaway, I think, well, not the takeaway, but you know what I mean, um, yeah. one of many sad takeaways in this uplifting novel, right, it's so uplifting, it's very so happy ending, actually, I mean, life affirming. Yeah. Life affirming. <laughs> I will say, I do like that there was, speaking of the studio exec, um, you throw one, of, there's a little, there's a little Easter egg, yeah for, uh, for one of your other books Sadie which I loved Thank um you. I love that they like exist in the same world did you sort of always intend to that or did it just sort of an opportunity presented itself to be able to throw Sadie um I when uh Aiden Archery comes to the resort he's a, a studio exec and he's like haunted by his best movie which is Sadie mm-hmm. <laughs> which is based on Sadie's life and um, I just love the idea of someone, I don't, I didn't love this part of it, but like he's, he obviously exploits her life and then he can't get out from under it. Like yeah. you're going to do that. That's what you deserve. You creep. But also I like what it suggests about West because West sold those rights to Aiden Archer. And a lot of people were like, is West a good guy or is West a bad guy? Interesting. Yeah. And so there's a, it'll be after, um, since it's after, like uh, there's a prequel no, no, an epilogue to Sadie that you can get that people got for pre-ordering. I'm the girl that is a bridge story to I'm the girl and it's all through West's perspective and it's actually set with him meeting Aiden Archer and going through the whole process of do I want to do this and will I do this and the way he justifies it was very fun to write. I admittedly did not take that leap to be like, to wonder like how he would have gotten the rights and yeah, West would have sold them. And now I'm questioning West about like everything. Why A couple people died for him to get them. Well, you know, I have to wonder, like you'd written several books before Sadie and then Sadie comes out and is just like, breakout you know for you right is does that leave a lot of pressure for you and all of your sort of remaining like whatever books you write after Sadie do do you have concerns about it being compared to Sadie or not well I'm I'm two books from Sadie and a lot of people their responses well not a lot of people but you know some people are like this isn't Sadie (laughs) and I'm like I know it's not Sadie (laughs) I wrote it so it wouldn't be um you know, Sadie, uh, I think, bifurcated my career. I've said that several mm-hmm. times when I have these conversations. Um, a lot of people think it was my debut. I think it fits uh, really well into the Courtney Summers canon, the way the uh, female characters are sort of in conversation with each other, their stories. But if you come in at Sadie and you don't know who came before her, you're probably not going to like who came after. Um, if you come in after Sadie, there's a 
there might be a better chance of you liking who came before so it's very interesting watching this multitude of reactions from where people have um sort of been introduced to my career and sadie cast uh i don't it's not like a negative shadow but like it's yeah. obviously there's a shadow over it so like all of my work is now in conversation with sadie and i can't really i can't write worrying about that i mean if i did uh i probably wouldn't have written the project <laughs> you know like <laughs> Um, yeah. People, yeah, people felt really betrayed by that book, which is like, it's, I, you know, because to me, there's a progression of female characters, which is that, um, like the first, God, what book was Sadie? It was my sixth book. So the first five characters are kind of culminated in Sadie, who was like uh, the girl who went and mm -hmm. sort of was going to write this horrible wrong in the way that she, like with murder. <laughs> Right. You know, she was like all that rage crystallized into that action point. And then Lo comes along and she's like, I'm going to take down a cult. This is in the project. And then she falls into it. She's like a subversion mm -hmm. of the Courtney. She's the beginning of a subversion of a Courtney Summers protagonist, which to me, it feels natural. And that's kind of way I want to go when I'm writing. I want to explore new things. And then Georgia is like an all the way subversion of a Courtney Summers protagonist. So like when they're all in conversation with each other, they make perfect sense to me. But if you're coming into the conversation in the middle of it, you know, it'll be interesting. It's interesting to see what resonates with who. Um, I think the success of of most books just hinges on getting them into as many hands as possible and letting the readers therefore find them because you cannot write a book that is for everyone. You just can't. Yeah. yeah. So when I really each book that I released, I'm like, this is for a very specific audience and I hope they find it. I yeah the first book I read of yours was Sadie and I to me the progression makes perfect sense going from Sadie to the project to now I'm the girl like I I that that makes sense to me so thank you at least from my perspective which really is the only one that matters I, here. I was just gonna say like it's Jill and Jill that's it <laughs> um <laughs> I will say sort of on that topic I know that it See, I'm going to do one of these like deep cuts again, and you're probably going to be like, what is this? But okay. <laughs> so in 2018, Electric Literature called you a master of the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I get that. And I I think that's why <laughs> I, not. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I love your book so much is that you have these girls who would probably to some degree, um, have probably been called it or would self-identify yeah. with it. I mean, when I was like George's age, I joined the Heartless Bitch International Club. So like <laughs> I This is why you're my hero. <laughs> but so for you, what does that label, like the master of bitch of the bitch, what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, some I'm going to put it on my business cards, like and let other people decide, like, what is this about? You should, writing you should just about be like, life? that should just be your business card, like Courtney Summers, the, the master of the bitch. Of and that's it. That's it. No, nothing else. I mean, electric literature, like they also said, like, because I write nuanced and wrenching stories about unlikable girls. And I feel yeah. like that's the, that's the heart of it. That's what it means to me. But also, you know, I feel like the way I want to move through my own life is I don't want to be nice, but I want to be kind. Mm. So like, I feel like it all fits into that philosophy. It's like a sort of 
you know, just allowing the full spectrum of humanity uh, in female characters and, you know, like in your lived life, like it's so easy to be called a bitch when you're a woman. So I'm you know, fine with living up to that. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I, what did I do that made you mad? It's not what I did. It's what you didn't like that I did. Correct. Correct. Um, uh, I, that it's so interesting that you said the nice kind thing because I spend an absurd amount of time thinking about those two words together and I think I am not a nice person but I can be a kind person and it's so weird to me (laughs) like how that exists in like how that duality of being able to be one and not the other exists and I I don't even know if I could explain to you <laughs> like I, I think- can pick out examples from my life and be like this is where I was I was kind to a person here like like kind to humanity as a whole and like we are all dealing with our own thing and right. recognizing that we're all dealing with our own thing and like taking people as they are like that but then if you get me one-on-one or I'm I'm not necessarily nice I'm gossipy and like can be petty and it's can be a mess and so (laughs) (laughs) it's it's strange it's strange well to me niceness is like an idea of kindness that is is not doesn't really isn't copacetic to the human experience like niceness is what we all want everyone to be and like an ideal that they can achieve kindness is like I think kindness is empathy driven and, yeah. and niceness is superficial out there's superficiality <laughs> and yeah. I also think like you know just getting petty and 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 bitchy and whatever like that's just part of being alive if you don't vent you can't be kind <laughs> or you just become mean <laughs> <laughs> right. you know like sometimes yeah. that moment where you indulge in pettiness prevents you um from calling someone an asshole that's been an <laughs> asshole you know it keeps you that's in true. check that's true that is true all right i'll give you that that's <laughs> <laughs> um i'm wondering when you were you know writing this book there are a lot of challenging topics there are a lot of challenging scenes were there any scenes not to spoil anything but were there any scenes or any types of scenes you found easier and or more challenging than than others to write I the can I kiss you scene was very hard to write yeah um yeah because um okay well since the book I love talking from the or to the future you know the book is out so I can see it is it is it is out by the time people (laughs) listening to this okay so so, um Georgia's grooming culminates in in uh her boss Matthew um being like I I can't work you you know you're too beautiful to work with I can't control myself I'm going to protect you by uh (sighs) yeah by telling by letting you go and he knows that she's a lesbian at this point and she's like well you know i can give you the release you need and it won't mean anything because i'm a lesbian i like girls and he's like okay we can try this and every time he like he opens up this abuse with a question can i kiss you can i kiss you and each time georgia says yes and i want it and it's it's so painful to write because as adults we know that she is not consenting he has weaponized consent against her to make her believe that she is empowered and she has been groomed up to this point to believe that she can have control over powerful men with her beauty and her body so it was 
it was difficult to write that scene um, because it's just um, it pushes against the things that you you know like we we always talk about like enthusiastic mm-hmm. consent in fiction, which is obviously critical. But I want to show how easy it is for predators to take advantage of these concepts to abuse young women. You know, like Georgia would in that moment does not think that she is being abused. She is thinking, right. she even says at some point, she's like, oh my God, he is on his knees for me. How cool yes. is, like, she doesn't say how cool is that? I would, I would never write those words, but <laughs> she's like, this is like, I'm powerful. I'm, I'm at the peak of my, my beauty and my power. And a man who owns the world is on his knees for me. And she thinks that's like incredible. And as an adult, you know, that it's not, you know, that this is abuse and and committing fully to her perspective where she feels deeply empowered by what is happening to her. That's hard because I know that she's not being empowered. I know that she's being abused. Yeah. But it was also really important to commit to that perspective because again, any any moment where Georgia turned to the reader and said, I know this is wrong, would have undermined the reality of the situations that it's based on. Or any moment a character would have said, this this is what happened to you would have that would also have it, it's just not the I, I, you know it would just not be the way to approach her story it would have uh, it would have it would have also undermined her as a character and what she needed from the people in her lives and i think people don't want not all people but some readers really don't want the specificity of these experiences to be laid out. They want something mm-hmm. more generalized so that they can um, feel a little bit more comforted by the horrible thing they've just read. And I just, I'm not going to give that to them. I'm not, never. Don't I'm do it. Them. Thank you. Yeah. Continue Jill to said make... not to do it. Don't do it. There you go. For See, Jill. <laughs> you have my endorsement. Thank People, you. I mean, don't complain to me, listeners, but I'm just <laughs> Complain to Jill, please. <laughs> No, I'm glad you mentioned that scene because I, I, and, and, you know, I think the scene, if you, a similar scene appears in, in various, you know, adult romance books, this idea of like the consent and asking for it. And it's a very different experience when it's between two adults who are not being, you know, manipulated, but those same actions and words if you just took that dialogue section and moved it to a different book it would be read in a very different way but because right. of the power dynamic between these two characters yeah it was very unsettling I was just like yeah. oh please stop tell him now <laughs> <laughs> just just, it just kept going it was so, it just kept it, going <laughs> yeah it was so it was very it was distressing right like I had uh, this book like I I'm good usually at putting like a wall between myself and what I write and I would wake up with like little scratches on my face and I can only like I haven't had them since and I can just I can only assume that I was <laughs> scratching my face in my sleep out of stress from this book I'm like okay that's new I don't like it <laughs> we don't need to do that anymore yeah that's not a good thing I, I know it's like it was just so stress. it's like the desire to not fuck up was Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> it was just so intensely overwhelming at all times. And a lot of the times it was writing against the expectation of how a rape mm. narrative should read. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. much of this book is like this. 
And it's it's not, I wouldn't even call it a subversion. I think it's an account of things that actually happen. It's just, it's just refusing to um, generalize or moralize or, or make the main character a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Thank you. It was really good. I loved it, by the way. Oh, I mean, in case I was not clear. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, she's reading it. Ah! I did. <laughs> I, I did. Um, yes, friends, listeners, I texted Courtney as I was reading the book. Um, <laughs> to be like, uh, and I would have kept texting you because I'm like, I like sucking into it. And I'm like, I can't pause to text Courtney. I have to finish the book. So... I would have just like just keyboard like, mashed. I get so stressed out when people are reading my book. I'm like, no, we're not, we don't exist for each other right now. You just read, I don't exist, that's you fair. don't exist, it's See, happening. It worked out, it worked out then. It did. <laughs> well, I just have one question left, which is what do you hope readers take away from reading I'm the Girl? Jeez. <laughs> I mean, that's that's entirely up to them. I think that I'm the Girl is designed to be an experience that sort of reveals its readers. So I think they should tell me what they took away from I'm the Girl. Did you walk away from this book feeling um, like you wanna be part of uh, a pathway to change by you know believing women, by uh, understanding that you know these systems are, you know, they're huge, they're everywhere, they're insidious, but these seemingly I don't want to, they're not inconsequential, but just like to be able to read a book like this and to start reframing the way you talk about these kind of stories, you know, that's what I, I'm really hoping yeah. that it encourages people to reframe the way that they talk about these kinds of stories. This is a book that like offers you a space to believe a girl. You don't lose anything by believing in Georgia. So if you chose not to believe her, you chose not to empathize with her, you chose to think of her as stupid, why did you do that? What are you telling girls like her? It's, you know, I'm interested to see where that lands, but I, I have no control over this part of this process. So, you know, you know, <laughs> what? that's true. That's, uh. that's okay. No, I, <laughs> this is a solid answer. This is a solid thank answer. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Courtney, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. This was again, so much fun. I'm going to write another book and we'll do this again. Right. Perfect. Works for me. Yes. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.